James chapter 5, verse 13, we're going to read there uh, in, this, in just a moment. We've been, James has really been all about authentic faith. It's been li- about, about living it out, uh, faith in action, uh, all of these, these ideas. So we're going we're gonna to finish up our study tonight. But let's read, I'm going to read verses 13 through 18, and then we'll break it down a little bit. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. (coughs) Excuse me. Well, James uses uh, his closing words to describe effective prayer. You know, like, like a car without fuel Life without prayer grinds to a halt. Like, like a lamp without electricity, the, the prayer-starved Christian fails to shine in a dark and a desperate world. And, but, but on the flip side, show me a man or a woman of prevailing prayer, and I'll show you a man or a woman whose faith is deep. Effective, fervent prayer moves the heart of the omnipotent God of the universe. It's a great mystery that God would partner with us in this way. Yet, knowing that, the, that prayers can move the heart of God, there are far too many Christians that fill their lives with dizzying activities. I mean, it's one thing after another, after another, after another, and, and it leaves no time for this crucial ingredient that can transform mere human actions into divine acts of power. And James, in this passage, we're going to look at it, break it down a little bit, but he details... Uh, prayer. He talks about prayer in several different forms. <coughs> Excuse me, got a little tickle right there. He talks about praise and intercession and confession. And, uh, and he connects prayer with several other important uh, ideas and spiritual disciplines like healing and confession, uh, anointing and correction, praise and forgiveness. So let's read, I want to read verse 13, because it sort of tees it up for us. He says, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Now, it seems to be obvious, but but James says it, we should pray when we're in trouble. Um, And when he uses that word trouble, it refers to affliction, which can be physical or mental, emotional, spiritual. It can include disease or discouragement, doubt or anxiety, uh, financial hardships or relationship conflicts. In short, it it includes anything that causes trouble or affliction. And here's the thing. Everybody in this room, we all know, everybody's going to face trouble. I mean, let me just take an, an informal survey. Anybody here ever experienced any kind of trouble in your life? Let me see your hand. Okay, guess what? It's 100%. Every person faces trouble in their life. And when we face trouble, there are a lot of different ways that we can respond to that trouble. Some of us worry. Any, any worriers here when you face trouble? That's, you know, you end up spending uh, your, your nights staying, lying awake in your bed worrying about what's going to happen. Um, some of us 
begin instead of worrying, we vow revenge against those who have caused the trouble if somebody did something to us. Some of us let anger burn inside of us. Some people just grumble. You know, they just complain about all the trouble that they have. In fact, I've known some people, and you probably have too, that they're not happy unless they've got some trouble that they can complain about. <laughs> you know, that's, they, that's how they thrive. But, but James tells us here that the correct response to trouble is to pray. And you know, the, the thing is, I found people don't usually have a hard time turning to God in prayer when their lives are unraveling. In fact, that's often when the only time some people will turn to God. Um, you know, when, when pain increases, when, when worry overcomes then, when, when events begin to spin out of control, God finally gets his call. Oh, God, help me. But you know what? It's been my experience that, that people, even people who do pray, tend to put off prayer as sort of the last option or if... if, if Worse than that, they, they treat it like some kind of a, a time waster that distracts them from working out a solution to the problem on their own. But James is clear here. Prayer is the solution to the problem. That's the thing. It's not just a distraction. It doesn't keep us from working out a solution. Prayer is the solution. Everything we do must start with prayer. Now, I want to say this, that that James says that we should pray when we're in trouble, but that doesn't mean that God immediately ends the affliction. Sometimes there's a, there's a lesson that he's teaching us through that process, and, and so sometimes he, he's gonna, we're going to walk through some hard times. Uh, God never promises instant relief. Thank God those times when he comes. Everybody probably has had that one, you know, at least one instance in their life where you prayed and God sent an immediate answer. I mean, thank God for those times. But there, have been, there are a lot of times, many times in my life, where God didn't send the instant relief, but He did give me the strength for patient perseverance. He did promise me that He would never leave me as I walked through that valley. He did uh, make sure that I understood His presence was with me and He strengthened me in the process. And so this prayer is not necessarily a prayer for deliverance from the trouble, but, but it is a prayer for patience and strength to endure it many times. And you know, when it comes to prayer, I found that there are three main reasons uh, for people when, uh, not praying when they realize that they're in trouble. And, and this is not, you know, this is not an exhaustive list or anything, but I, I've come up with at least three main reasons for not praying when we realize we're in trouble. Number one is, is ignorance. And I don't mean, you know, sometimes we use ignorance you know, we say the word ignorant like it's an insult. That just means that you just don't know. That's all it means, ignorance. If we don't know that God wants us to pray when we're in trouble, then we're just simply ignorant of the Scripture. We just don't know. That's all it means. And, and James gives permission and encouragement to those who are ignorant. He says, listen, if you don't know what to do here, I'm telling you, you need to pray when you're in trouble. The second reason we need, that we sometimes don't pray when we're in trouble and this is where it gets a little more insidious, is arrogance. If we don't pray when we're in trouble, sometimes we don't do it because we're trusting in our own resources, or I think I'm strong enough, or I'm big enough, or I can handle it, I'm wise enough, I can figure this out. And when that happens, I'm, I'm just being arrogant. 
And James urges the person who's arrogant to submit themselves to, to the Lord in humility. And the third reason some, sometimes people don't pray, this is a very real reason. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but sometimes people don't pray because of shame. They, 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 they may want to pray, but they're ashamed because they know that the, the trouble that they're in was their own fault. Anybody here ever been in trouble that was your own fault? <laughs> Probably. Honestly, most of my trouble has been my own fault, frankly. Uh, but, but if it, it, sometimes, you know, somebody who's ashamed of that can, can be afraid and say, why, why should I, how could I go to God and ask him to help me? I'm the one that did this. But James wants us to know that God is full of compassion and mercy and that, and that it's okay. He still wants us to come to him in prayer. And he wants us all, all to pray when we're in trouble. But then he goes on um, and he says, if we're happy, we should pray. You say, well, that's not what he says. He says, sing songs of praise. Well, we're going to talk about that, but that's really just another kind of prayer. Um, the, the word translated happy here is used in Acts chapter 27, where uh, if you remember, Paul was on this, on this ship and there was a great storm and they were about to be shipwrecked and God told the Apostle Paul, he said, nobody's going to die. You remember that story in Acts chapter 27. If you don't know it, you can look it up and read it later. Um, well, this is the word that is, that you, is used when Paul uh, tells, uh, encourages all of his fellow pa uh, passengers uh, to have a peace, a peace of mind in their, in their hearts, to have peace of the, in their hearts uh, despite the raging storm that was tearing apart their ship. So, so this, when he talks about when we're happy, this is a, a sense of peace in spite of troubles that may be occurring in a person's life. Or it may be a sense of peace and joy just because of the fact that, <laughs> hey, for at least for a little while, I don't have any troubles. Aren't those wonderful times, you know? The last, you know, the two minutes of your, of your last week that, that you didn't have any trouble. But James says it, that, that if we're fortunate enough to be happy, we should thank God by singing songs of praise. I've found that the quick, quicker we are to blame God for misfortune, that the slower we are to praise God when good things happen. And some of us, I really think we take our happiness too lightly. We take the good times too lightly. You know, we, we, we wrestle with and worry about when things are rough and when things are bad, when we're really facing difficulties in life. But then when things are going great, we just sort of just go with the flow. And we, de we don't think about the fact that, hey, I need to make sure that I'm giving God thanks for this moment, for this time. Um, because in happiness... It is easy to forget God. You remember how I said that a lot of people, when trouble hits, there's a, it does, it's really easy to get people to pray when trouble hits. But the problem is a lot of, lot of us, when the trouble passes and things are going well, we just sort of forget God and we leave Him out of the picture. But if prayer is to be our constant communication with God, then, then not only should we pray to Him in times of trouble, but then happy times should naturally just sort of add rhythm and music to our expressions of thanks and praise to Him. You know, here's the thing. I, I believe that, almost, that, that really every Sunday that we gather together, we unconsciously apply James 5.13. Particularly this part where he talks about, if anyone is happy, let him sing songs of praise. 
the, the use of singing in worship, you know, we don't do that. It's not intended just to create a mood for the rest of the service uh, or it was not meant to allow people to stand and stretch for a little while or, or to provide a, 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 you know, a break between the spoken parts of the service. We need to know and, and recognize that singing worship songs is a form of prayer, is an expression to God. It is a communication to God. We're singing songs to Him and for Him. Um, that's, why we, that's what we're doing. And so that means we should think about what we're singing. You know, too many times we just go through the motion, we sing the words, and we don't think about the words that we're saying. We need to think about what we're singing, and then we need to sing those words with joyful reverence. By, by its nature, you know, when we come together and sing, what I love about it is that it, it allows us to come as close as possible to praising God in perfect union, because at least we're all singing the same words at the same time, at least in theory. You know, maybe somebody's dragging behind a little bit, uh, but, uh, but, but, but by its nature, music allows us to do that. And, and you know, when we gather together and we sing, maybe not everybody there is happy, but the joyful expression of the, of the ones who are may actually be what God uses to lift the spirits of those who are broken or those who are lost, those who are hurting. James uh, next covers a major area of prayer with which most Christians are familiar. I mean, who, who hasn't called out to God for healing from sickness, whether for yourself or for, or for someone else? In, in fact, it seems like most of our prayer requests in our prayer list uh, seem to have to do with recovery from illness or surgery or, or injury or something like that. So, so James addresses the issue of the physically Ill, Ill. Look at verse 14. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. All right, there's a lot there, so let's break it down a little bit. First of all, James encourages a sick person to call for the elders of the church for prayer. And I find that really interesting because it seems as if nowadays it looks as if maybe sometimes we get it the other way around because sometimes... It's been my experience in ministry that, that sometimes the pastors are the last to know when somebody is sick or hospitalized or incapacitated in some way. And there, there's some people who, who are sick who don't want anybody to know it. But, but James says that even our physical illnesses are not merely private, personal matters. We're, we're to give the body of Christ the opportunity to minister to us in our weakness and he says the elders, the elders were spiritually mature men who were responsible for overseeing local churches. Uh, uh, you know, that, the, the word elder in, the, in those days, it could, be, uh, it could be referring to a pastor. But any leader in the church, in, in our church, we would talk not only, we would call not only the pastors of the church, but maybe the deacons of the church um, to, to do that. And, and, and as elders then... Uh, these men would, would pray over the sick person, calling upon the Lord for, for healing. And as the elders pray for this one who is sick, they, they are to voice clearly that the power of healing 
resides in the name of Jesus. And while they're praying, it says they should anoint them with oil. So there's a lot going on there. I want to talk about that anointing of oil because anointing was, was often used by the early church in their prayers for healing. When we look at this idea of anointing with oil, in Scripture, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, people and things were anointed with oil to symbolize that they were being set apart for God's use. So David was anointed king. That was because God said, he is the one I'm choosing. And uh, so he was anointed and set apart by God for God as the king of Israel. Uh, the, the, the different utensils and the furniture in the, in the temp tabernacle and in the temple, they were anointed with oil. Uh, and the idea behind that was they were set apart and said, these things are, are for God's house. These things are for God and for him alone. So when we understand that, then the, this oil that he's talking about is a symbol of the, of the Holy Spirit coming to do a work in a person's body. So as the oil is, is placed upon the person, however your tradition may do it, then it's a symbol of the fact that the Holy Spirit is coming to rest upon that body. But it's also symbolic. I, I, I love this idea. It's symbolic of the, of the setting apart of the sick person for God's special attention. It's saying you are now being set apart for God's attention right where you are in your moment of sickness. But more important than the oil itself, however, is the, the key function of the elders is their prayer for the sick person as evidenced by the verses that follow. In verse 15, it says that the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. So now this prayer must be from the heart. It has to be a sincere prayer. Um, it has to be prayed with trust in and obedience to God. Um, and, and when we talk about prayer offered in faith, I, I, feel, I believe that that faith, that the believing is the role of the elders who are praying not necessarily the sick persons. And if it is, does apply to the sick person, it's really more, uh, you know, I, I feel like that person exercises faith in actually being obedient and coming and asking for prayer. See, if I'm sick and I come to you and say, I want you to pray for me, that in and itself is an act of faith. Because I'm saying, I believe God can heal me if you'll pray for me. Because and we're, it's not because of, the elder or the oil or anything else because it's obedience. This is what God said to do. Why does he ask us to do things like this? Well, it's just simply because when we do it his way, then it becomes very obvious to us that he was the one who did it when the answer comes. See, and if we don't, if we just say, well, I'll just do whatever. And then when, when he heals us, then we're like, well, I just got better. But when we do what he says, and we go to the elders and they pray for us and they anoint us with oil. And then, and then God touches us and we, get, and we get healed. You know, we weren't able to go in, to Randy's uh, bedside and anoint him with oil because the hospitals wouldn't let uh, people in, you know, with all COVID and all that kind of stuff going on. Uh, and God understood that. So we did what we could do. And we as a church prayed for Randy. And as we prayed for him, we saw the miraculous working of the hand of God. Now, if, if we didn't just pray, if we just said, well, God will, God will take care of it. Then when he got better, we would say, wow, that was pretty incredible. Randy must be a strong guy to be able to come through all that. We would not recognize and give credit to God for what he did. But because we pray, when we do what he says, 
it becomes very obvious to us that the hand of God is at work. So it's, that's one of the reasons why it's so important for us to do it the way that he says in Scripture. It's not to be legalistic. It's not to say, well, this is the only way it's going to be, and this is how it has to happen. This is just by saying, a way of saying, if I just do what God says, this, that in, a, in itself is an act of faith, and I'm going to trust God to, to, to meet me. And then when, he, when the Lord raises us up, then we know he did it. And that's what he said. He said the Lord will raise him up. Not the elders, uh, not the oil, but the Lord himself does the healing. Now here's the question. When we read this, this particular verse that I think comes to mind, does this verse mean that every prayer for healing guarantees that God will make the sick person well if we pray for them? Is that what that verse says? Is that what it means? Well, here's the thing. When it talks about a prayer of, offered in faith, I think we need to understand what faith is in when we pray for somebody in faith because we tend to have a very narrow view of faith in saying, in saying well, I have faith and that faith is only for this one particular thing. Um, it, it, it's, it's not only that faith believes, uh, the faith that believes that God can heal, but it's also the faith that expresses absolute confidence in God's will. A, a true prayer of faith will acknowledge God's sovereignty in his answer to that prayer. Great example of that. Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The three Hebrews that were told, you know, they were, they were captives in Babylon and they were told when the king put out the statue and the music started playing, the order was given that everybody should bow and worship the, the statue of the king. And these three wouldn't do it. And uh, the penalty was going to be death. And so they were brought before the king. And, and the king said, I'm going to give you one more chance to do what I told you to do. When the music starts, you bow down and worship my statue. And they said, you don't really need to bother, king. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. They said, because we're not going to bow. We, we serve the one true God. He's the only one that we'll bow to. He's the only one that we'll worship. And so you may as well save your musician's breath. We're not going to bow. And, they, and, and then the, the king had threatened them and said, you know what, you're, you're going to be thrown into the furnace. You're going to be burned alive if you don't do this. But here's, their response was, and again, I'm paraphrasing, was something along these lines. They said, they said we know that our God can deliver us. And they said, we believe he will. But then they didn't stop there. They said, nevertheless, even if he doesn't, we still will not bow. See, that tells me that these three men of faith knew that God could, could deliver them, could keep them from, from dying in the fire. And they actually believed that he would. That was what they said. But they also left open the, the, uh, the concept of in, in, that in the sovereignty of God that he may want them, for whatever reason, to die for their faith. I mean, maybe that would inspire other people. So they, they understood, hey, we believe he can, we, we believe he will, but even if he doesn't, doesn't make any difference, I still trust in him. And so that's the kind of faith that, in which we pray. 
A prayer for healing uh, must be qualified with recognition, recognition that God's will is supreme. You know, I mean, I, I want this person to be healed. But what if they're healed and then that, the next week they face a greater heartache than they could ever possibly bear? Maybe in God's mercy, he says, it's time for you to come home. Right? Maybe in God's mercy, he says, he says you know what? You, you've lived a, a, a long, hard life, and now it's time for you to find some rest. You know, my dad, when, when he was sick and he was in, in the hospital and, and eventually went into hospice, I, we prayed for him, and I knew God could heal him. But you know what? When the time came, uh, I, didn't, I wasn't angry with God that he didn't answer my prayer because really, in essence, I was praying that God would, would heal him because I didn't want him to suffer anymore. Well, guess what? He's not suffering. And, you know, people say, well, I'm sorry you lost your dad. I didn't lose my dad. My dad was a, was a man of God. He was not a preacher. He was a truck driver for years before he retired. He was a quiet man, but he was a man of God. And, and something is only lost if you don't know where it is. I know where he is. So there's comfort in that. And even though, didn't, they, even though my prayer didn't get, didn't get answered the way I wanted, I still know that God is in charge. And that's the kind of faith that says, God, I believe you can heal. I'm asking you to heal. I'm even believing that you will heal. But even if you don't, it doesn't change anything. I still have faith in you, no matter what, no matter what. See, it's not our role either to decide how God will answer our prayers or to excuse him if our human desires are not met. I don't have to make it, you know, my human desire was not met with my dad, but I also don't have to make excuses for him and say, well, here's why he didn't heal. I don't have to make excuses. He's sovereign. He knows what he's doing. I can trust him. Um, the thing is, trusting God only as long as he cooperates with our plans, <laughs> that's not trust at all. The prayer offered in faith gives God a free hand to work. It says, Lord, I'm asking for healing. I'm believing for healing. But you do what, what is best because you know things that I can't possibly ever know. You see the big picture, and I only see this little moment. There, there are some who say that if a person is not healed, then it was because they didn't have enough faith. I always kind of cracked me up, you know, when some uh, faith teacher got up and said, well, you know, they weren't healed because they didn't have enough faith. And I'm just like, well, hey, if you were praying, you were there too. You, 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 maybe you didn't have enough faith. Why are you putting it on that person? Um, and, and so, but, but the thing is, it, it, the size of our faith is not what matters. What did Jesus say? He said, if you have faith, the, the size of a mountain, no. He says, if you have faith, the, like the, the grain of a mustard seed, anybody know? I mean, you know, mustard seeds, little tiny. Uh, he says, if you have that kind of faith, you can say to this mountain, be removed, and it'll be removed. This obstacle can be moved. God can do miracles in response to a, just a tiny little bit of faith. So it's not about our faith. It's not about how great our faith is. 
It's about recognizing the character of God, the character of the God in whom our faith rests. So my little bit of faith is in a great big God. That's why it doesn't matter about my, how, how big my faith is or how little my faith is. It's about me recognizing I'm putting whatever faith I have in a God that can do anything. In a God that can do miracles. And that's what makes a difference. And, and overemphasis, actually the truth is, an overemphasis on our faith's involvement places too much responsibility on my capacity to know God's plan in the matter. It places too much uh, uh, responsibility on what I have to do. And the problem with that is, then when the healing comes, if, if it's all been about my faith, then who's going to get the credit? I'm gonna, I would be able to say, I had faith. But if I understand it's not about my faith, it's about the God in whom I place my faith. Then when the healing comes, I say, man, my faith was like a mustard seed. It was so tiny. There have been times, I'll be honest, there have been times I've prayed for somebody. And as I prayed, I was just thinking, I don't even know why I'm praying. Because I, you know, I was just like, it's like I barely even believe that this is going to happen. I'm just being honest with you. I mean, has anybody else ever prayed that way? You know, you're just like going through the motions. And then God did something. And I'm like, whoa, well, that sure wasn't me. That's for sure. Anyway, if we have even small faith that simply trusts in a wise, merciful, and powerful God to do what is best, we'll see miracles happen. Now, he goes on in that verse, in that passage we just read, and teaches that sin may or may not be the cause of the illness. He says, if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. So that tells me, uh, first of all, the Bible teaches that sin can cause sickness. Uh, but it also notes clearly, especially we see here, that that is not always the case. In fact, you know, Paul was talking about uh, communion and the, the Lord's Supper. And he told, he, he told the church, he said, listen, uh, some of you are eating and drinking uh, uh, w- without regard to the, to the body of, of, the, of, of the Lord. And he said, in so doing, you're eating and drinking death to yourself. He said, for this reason, some of you are... Are, are sick among you and some have even fallen asleep. So, so you know, sin can have result of the consequences of sin, but uh, are the consequences of sickness. But we need to understand that while that can happen, not every sickness is caused by sin. I, I mean, J- Jesus said that. Remember the man born blind. And they, they, the, the disciples saw this man born blind and they thought, we're going to get some answers now. He was born blind and, and the disciples said, um, was, is this man blind as a result of, of his sin or his parents' sin? Very interesting question because it, it gives us an insight into the fact that Jewish people actually believed that a baby could sin while it was still in the womb. Because if you're born blind, how in the world is your blindness going to be uh, as, a, as a result of your sin? Well, Jesus' answer was, neither one. He said, this man is blind because the glory of God is going to be put on display. And, in, and then he, he healed this man and, and, made it, made it, and made it point that even though this man went through this darkness and he, he suffered this blindness, that it was all in the end going to bring glory to God. 
So we know that sin can cause sickness, but that's not always the case. However, if the person's illness was caused by his or, own, his or her own sin, then what James is saying is God's restoration can include both physical and spiritual recovery. The, the, kind of the, to me, the idea behind it is that if a person has sinned and he has realized that he has sinned and it has caused this sickness, uh, he's realized his great need for God and he has turned back to him and he's come back to God and he's saying, I need prayer for healing, then that is a sign of his repentance and because of his repentance, his sin will be forgiven. Therefore, James urges, he says, therefore, confess your sins one to another. We, we, listen, we are often guilty of hesitating to lean on each other in our sicknesses and weaknesses, but we're even more liable not to confess our sins to each other. But here's the question, and I think this is, helps us in the context here. If, if Christ has made it possible, possible for us to go directly to God for forgiveness then why should we confess our sins to each other? So that's a, that's a valid question to ask. Well, first of all, I don't believe he's referring to confession of our offenses before God. I don't think he's talking about confession in the same sense as when he says confess your sins to God. He's not urging, you know, confession to a priest in a dark, small booth somewhere. And he certainly doesn't advocate indiscriminately dumping all of your sins and shame in front of everybody in the congregation. You know, he's not saying get up in church and tell everybody everything you've ever done. But I think the context here, because he's talking about offenses, he's taught, been talking about forgiveness. I think the context of James's message suggests that he's talking about making amends with those whom you have wronged and forgiving those who have wronged you. I think that's what he's talking about. If we have sinned against an individual, then we must ask that person to forgive us. And if our in general rule of thumb, if that sin has, if my sin has affected the entire church, then that's when maybe I need to confess it publicly. So if, if I sin in a way that affects the entire church body, maybe I need to stand up before the church body and say, I, I need you to forgive me. But if I sin against Mark, and nobody else in the church body knows that. I don't need to stand in front of the church body and say, I want everybody here to know that I am asking Mark for forgiveness. First of all, that puts him on the spot really bad, you know, but, 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 but in a way, you know, if I do that, it's really probably more me trying to shine a light on myself and let everybody see what a, what a great person I really am. So, uh, but, but this person, uh, it, He's just—he's talking about, I believe, confessing our sins to each other, going to the person saying, listen, I confess I've sinned against you. Would you please forgive me? And vice versa. Um, when we, some things happen, though, when we do confess our sins to one another, because there are some contexts where I might need to confess a sin to you that is not related, that is not related to you. And here, here's, here's the context where that would be. If, if I need support with a sin with which I'm struggling, then I should confess that sin to someone that I know loves me, someone I can trust, because then that person can help provide support for me. When we confess our sins to one another, we, by doing that, I, we are submitting ourselves to each other as the Scripture commands, and in so doing, 
we make ourselves accountable to another believer, which helps us gain strength. Um, And guess what? When you have released the burdens of guilt and shame and bitterness through confession and prayer, the garbage that has contaminated and diseased your life will be cleared away. Then he says that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. This is a, this is a, that's a powerful statement. The prayer is effective and it is powerful because the person who is praying is righteous. You have to see the connection between these. Now, righteous does not mean sinless. Uh, You know, the the person is not sinless, but that person has confessed known sins to God. That person is completely committed to the Lord and trying to do His will. He or she has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. And listen, when I confess my sin, when I repent of my sin, when I surrender to His Lordship, then, then He, the Bible says, that He declares me righteous. He wipes the slate clean. He makes me righteous. So it's not that I'm sinless but I am made righteous. I'm declared not guilty. And that's what he's talking about. The prayer of a person who has been been declared not guilty by God is powerful and effective. And and here's what happens. See, when I come to him and I surrender and and I confess my sin and and he declares me not guilty and he cleanses me of all my sin, what happens is my heart begins to change and I begin to want what God wants So here's what happens. The righteous person gets what he or she wants in prayer because he or she wants what God wants. So now I'm praying according to God's will. The the, the Christian's most powerful resource is communication with God through prayer. It's the instrument of healing and forgiveness. It's, It's a mighty weapon for spiritual warfare and the results are often greater than we thought were possible. We have to remember this. Prayer is not a last resort. Prayer should come first. And that's too often, that's how we treat it. We're like, man, I've tried everything else. Well, have you prayed? Well, I'm going to now. And I'm not saying that you pray and then sit back and don't do anything. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's presumptuous. But I'm saying before you do all those other things, we should pray. Who knows? God may meet you in that moment and you may not have to do anything. Or he, you, you may pray and the Lord will say, all right, now I want you to do this and you'll have the strength to be able to do it. But prayer is not a last resort. It should come first. And you know, some people, when you talk about prayer, they, they, they see prayer as a way to obligate God to give whatever they claim in faith um, but, but we need to understand prayer is an essential tool, but it cannot be used to manipulate God. God will not be manipulated. He is way smarter than you. You're not going to trick him into a loophole and say, well, you know, I confessed it. So now you got to do it. God is pleased to use our prayers to accomplish his purposes. And he delights in answering our needs, but our prayers never bind him because he is God and he is sovereign. Then he gives an example. In verse 17, Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. 
Again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. So James uses the example of Elijah to illustrate just how powerful prayer really is. Now, the story that he's referring to is found in 1 Kings chapter 17, uh, uh, verse 1 through, and the story goes through chapter 18, verse 46. Obviously, for the time's sake, we're not reading that tonight. But, but what happened was a drought came uh, to Israel as a sign to the evil king of Israel, who was King Ahab at the time, and it was a sign he was trying to, God was trying to get King Ahab to see that, that the idol whom he worshipped, which was the name of the idol, the false god, was Baal. He was, God was setting a sign to indicate that Baal did not have the power over rain. Only God did. And when Elijah prayed, it says it did not rain for, on the land for three and a half years. And then he prayed again for rain, and the heavens gave rain. But I think the important point, what I want to point out here that I think it's significant for us. The point that James makes is the very first line. It says, Elijah was a man just like us. That's really significant because we tend to look back. We read about these prophets and these great men of God, and it's almost like we put them on a pedestal. We're like, man, you know, they were awesome. I'll, I could never be like Moses. I could never be like Elijah. And James is saying the opposite. He's saying, listen, Elijah was just like you. He was just like you. He, was, he had great power in prayer, but he was just a human being. In fact, we know from reading his story that he was a follower of God who sometimes got depressed. Sometimes he had doubts. At one point, he even wanted, to, he wanted God to kill him. He just wanted to die. And yet he had, had a great, great power in his prayer. I mean, Elijah, he snatched defeat out of the jaws of victory. That's what he did when he ran from Jezebel after decisively crushing the prophets of Baal. And James uses Elijah as an example of someone who did not allow his own weaknesses to undermine his trust in God. Elijah's weak belief in himself forced him to believe even more strongly in God. So if you say to yourself, man, I'm just so weak, then that should cause you to say, that's all the more reason that I need to lean into the strength of God. Elijah's power in prayer was not due to anything special about himself. It was due to the power of the God to whom he prayed. And here's the significant part for us. The same God who, who, who listened to and acted on Elijah's prayers will, will give attention to our prayers. Same God. Let's look at verses 19 to 20, and then we'll finish this up. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, so he finishes prayer, now he finishes the, now he's going to wind up everything with these last two verses. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. So here, James urges Christians to help backsliders return to God. Our problem is sometimes instead of reaching out and help bring them back to God, we push them away in, in, in judgment. But by taking the initiative, praying for the person, and acting in love, we can meet that person where he or she is and encourage and sometimes even be the tool that God uses to, to, for, for his or her return to God. He, he said, if, 
if any one of you should wander from the truth. And that, the word translated wander just refers to any deviation from the truth of the faith, whether inadvertent or intentional, whether minor or major. If we truly love one another, we will pursue one who is wandering away from the truth with a passion, but we will also do it with compassion. And as Christians, we, we should attempt to bring such a one back to the truth. When, when someone does wander, the church ought to try to bring him back, not, not for judgment. We have to remember, we want to bring them back for repentance, but the whole goal of all of it is restoration. That's what we want. When someone is wandering from God, you know, we have a number of people who have, who have you know, just after COVID hit, we still haven't seen them, you know, or, or rarely. And, and we need to pursue them. Not just me as the pastor, but all of us. We need to pursue them, not with judgment, but with the idea of them being restored to fellowship with this body. When a believer is aware of another believer's wandering, we have to know that that knowledge carries with it responsibility for action. It's not somebody else's job. If you know, you should pursue and, and, and everybody's different, you know, on how you do that. But you need to reach out. You need to, to go to them. You need to love them. You need to make sure they know that, that the door is open for them to return. Always. Uh, all these images portray a community where people care deeply for each other and wanderers are not allowed to slip through the cracks unnoticed. You know, are we, are we willing to bring, to try to bring back someone who is wandering? We, we tend to have... We tend to have two responses when somebody wanders. There's some of us that wring our hands with worry while the person goes off into darkness. And then there's others of us that wash our hands of them. God says, no, let's, neither, ways, neither of those is the right way. He says, go after them. Bring them home. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his, of his way will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. That the air of wandering from the truth is so serious as to lead to death, spiritual, eternal death, if that person is not brought back. However, when, when the believer repents and returns to God, God will forgive, He will cover over, He will forget that person's sins. And you know, when you cover a multitude of sins, what happens is, you know, that person, if they don't come back to God, they're going to continue down a whole line of sins. And God's saying, listen, if you bring them back, all of that is gone. You don't have to worry about any of that anymore. I read a, a story, uh, Howard Hendricks told a story about a young man who, after straying very far from the Lord, was finally brought back with the help of a friend who loved him unconditionally. And when this young man was fully restored, Dr. Hendricks asked him what it felt like when he was straying from God. And the man answered, he said, it seemed like I was being pulled, pulled farther and farther out to, to sea into deep water. And he said, all my friends were standing on the shoreline hurling accusations at me about justice, and condemnation and sin. Then he added, but there was one Christian brother who actually swam out to get me and he wouldn't let me go. I fought him, but he withstood my fighting. He grasped me, put a life jacket around me, and managed to pull me to shore. 
By the grace of God, he was the single reason I was restored. The man refused to let me go. Jesus does not want us to let anybody go either. If they go, if they wander from God, it should be because they fought us off chasing after them. You know, throughout this letter, James began with a challenge to endure hardship with joy, and now he closes with an appeal to watch out for each other. Believers are to pursue their faith together. It is God who saves and keeps, but He allows us to be involved in one another's Christian life. You know, the letter of James, we're going to close with this. It's, I read it like this. Somebody said that, Christian, that James is Christianity with its sleeves rolled up. It's the working person's practical guide to following a Christian faith. It spells out what it means to follow Jesus every day. And James emphasizes faith in action. That's not just enough to just believe. You've got to do something with it. You've got to live it out. You have to. Because right living is, is the evidence of and result of faith. If I have faith, I will live according to that faith. And if we truly believe God's Word, we'll live it day by day. God's Word is not something merely that we read or we think about, but it's something that we do. And the challenge for each of us According to James, the challenge for each of us is to make sure that we are doers of the word, not just hearers only. So I challenge you, you know, with that last couple of verses in mind as we close, uh, I challenge you, think about somebody who's wandering, somebody who's, who's uh, you know, wandering from the truth, who's not in church or Maybe not just in this church, but maybe a friend that you've known that sometime has served the Lord in the past or, or a family member or whoever it might be. Somebody who's wandered from, is wandering from the faith. And I challenge you to do something. Don't be just a hearer of this tonight. Do something. Send them a card. Make a phone call. Not just once, but continually pursue them. Make it your goal to say, if they if they wander from the faith, if they, if they completely lose out with God, it's not going to be because I didn't try to reach out to them. Be, be a roadblock, stopping them from, from wandering. Let Jesus use you. Find somebody, reach out to somebody. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, and I thank you, Lord God, for the challenge of your word, and I pray, Lord, that I know that there are people on my heart that are wandering from the faith. And I, and I just pray, God, you'd give me wisdom and courage to be able to know what I need to do and then the courage to follow through. And help me, Lord, to, uh, to do that with a heart of love and compassion, always speaking the truth, but God, always letting it be filled with love. And I pray, God, that in so doing, as we all do this, that we would see those that are wandering come back to the faith and Lord, that you would restore them to the body, restore them to their faith, and that, God, you would cover over a multitude of sins in their lives. God, I pray that you would help us, as we have learned in James, to put your word into, into action, that we won't just believe, we won't just say we have faith, but everybody will know about our faith because of the way we live. We ask all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.